Welcome back to How to Took Yourself. I'm your host, Duff McDonald, along with my co-host, Matt McButter. Today's guest comes to us from within the family. Almost. Sort of. I know Sophie Rochester because her sister is married to my brother. So, so the Rochesters <laughs> are basically the British branch of the McDonald family at this point. Uh, and it's such an impressive branch that when Joey and I took Marguerite to London last summer, she came back saying that she was moving to England because by comparison, America was trash. Ooh. Which brings <laughs> us back to Sophie. She's not trash. She's treasure. Uh, but a big part of what she does is make sure that one's man's trash does not turn into or does turn into another man's treasure. We'll get back to that in a moment. Uh, Sophie's worked for worked for over 20 years in the UK creative industries, uh, specializing for a decade in digital publishing ahead of the game with uh, consultancy, the literary platform. And more recently, she's been involved in the circular economy and creative industries uh, making and crafts with her current company, Yodomo. Uh, she worked at Random House, Fourth Estate, Coleman Getty. To some of our American and Canadian listeners, uh, we're talking some British properties here. All of us and good technology. She also consulted with Pan McMillan, Hachette, Penguin Random House. If you look behind me, listeners, down here, I have a set of uh, little snippets from Penguin that I got from Sophie maybe 15 years ago. In 2018, she founded the award-winning Yodomo, a company dedicated to exploring best practices in the reuse of materials through growing participation in making and crafts. Uh, she also wrote a book, which we have in this house, called Making a Living, How to Craft Your Business. Uh, like many... She has recently and increasingly become focused on environmental matters and has placed the work of Yodomo firmly within the circular economy. Uh, most interestingly, to me at least, is working with the London Borough of Hackney to develop a fully circular system that diverts commercial pre-consumer waste that can be reused from landfill and incineration and instead redistributes it to the local creative community. It's just amazing. Welcome to the show, sister. It's good to have you. Thanks for having me. After present moment, traveling town to town, the mystery of the motion right here, right now. So, um, so many of us have heard about the circular economy and you will see it, uh, touted, uh, in various places. You are the only person I know who I actually know to be truly working in the circular economy. Tell us about this stuff you're doing at the borough of Hackney. I think it's fascinating. Oh, thanks. Yep. There's a lot of noise about circularity and the circular economy. 
And I discovered this week that I'm what is known as a middle actor, which is someone who's actually doing the work. And there's obviously a lot of top-down stuff happening with governments trying to introduce circular economy approaches. And then there's a lot of grassroots stuff. And I guess we're somewhere in the middle. Um, 12 months ago, we pitched to Hackney Council and asked them to let us trial a new format, a new system within the borough where we would work with local businesses, find out what waste they were they had and try and reall- reallocate that to the maker community. I guess caveat for Hackney is that it's a very creative borough. You know, it's East London. There are a lot of makers that live there, a lot of craftspeople. Um, but anyway, Hackney went for it. They had a fund going and we were um, able to fund a nine-month pilot, which has just come to an end. And what we've been able to do is install ourselves at Hackney City Farm, which is a working farm in right in the middle of the borough, which has a donkey, a baby donkey, some goats. And I had a tiny little shop there, which used to be the farm shop where they sold eggs. And we've now installed ourselves in there. And it's become a kind of materials hub. So there we receive materials from local businesses. They're always pre-consumer. So we're not dealing with clothing or stuff that's dirty. It's always clean domestic grade materials. And then if you're one of our members, you become a creative reuse member and you come along to the farm and you can take away materials. Um, We have a few rules. There are a few rules. So you're not allowed to do a massive land grab and just grab loads of materials and go and sell them down at the market two minutes down the road. Um, And also we're kind of aware that there are hoarders, you know, people, if you just say free stuff, people will just take stuff uh, for the sake of it. So when we we ask our creative reuse members to tell us what they think they're going to do with the materials and they take away enough for their project and they're not allowed to take away more materials until they've shown us what they did with the first lot. Mm. So it just kind of controls it a little bit. And the other bit that's maybe slightly different from other scrap stores or creative reuse centers is in the, like you would call them in the US, is that we then try and track what happens to the waste. So we then have a relationship with those makers and they feed back to us the projects that those have, they've created with the waste. And this gives us a really nice full cycle system so that we can actually tell businesses look, you were going to put this into landfill, you were going to incinerate this, but look what has happened with your waste. And that's a really positive thing. And the other really positive thing is that the UK creative businesses, these are all like micro businesses. So we're actually supporting a local economy as well with low cost or free materials, which is which is another kind of plus point. So yeah, all in all, it's working really well. We've been really overwhelmed with the response. We've managed to divert just under three tonnes of materials from incineration, We've now got a thousand creative reuse members who are really active and engaged community. And we've had a number of other local authorities who are looking to try and replicate it um, around the UK. We're just trying to work out our next best step on that. Um, So far, so good. Really cool. Tell us a little bit of, I mean, who are some of the, you know, producers and then like what, what kind, and who are some of the makers and what, types of things are they crafting? I mean, I'm picturing like, you know, a cup made out of recycled tires and a, you know, shirt made out of, you know, maybe some <laughs> extra fabric or something like that from uh, some yeah. textile company. Is it, is it stuff like that? So I guess there's a real range. So we have um, 
we we started off very wide. Originally, we said, okay, we're just going to take any waste that any company is getting rid of. And then we soon worked out that we were going to have to focus a little bit because within the budget and the borough, we really needed to try and work out, make sure that the flow was sufficient, that we knew that what we were getting in, we knew we could get rid of as well. Otherwise, we were going to have our own waste problem. So getting that flow right was quite important. And we hit quite early on to the solution that textile waste was going to be a real problem for us in terms of we were getting a lot of textile waste in, but we also had a lot of textile makers and craftspeople who could use that material. So we actually focus specifically on textile waste now. That's not to say that we won't go back out again later on, but at the moment we're just using that because it's a big enough problem just to try and cope with that. So the kind of producers of textile waste in the UK, they might be um, cutting room floor. So it might be a fashion company and as part of their pattern, there might be textile waste that falls on the cutting room floor as part of a pattern. Um, There is a big movement within the industry within the fashion industry for sort of zero waste pattern cutting to try and make that much better. But that's, I guess we're like a, an actionable solution for now while the industry is making changes at the same time. Mm. Then there might be a carpet company, for example. So we're working quite closely with a carpet company. They might go and fit out a really huge room in West London, for example, but it might be an L-shaped room, which leaves a huge chunk of carpet left over which the client doesn't want, you know, they basically don't want to have that in their house. It's just an additional storage issue. And the other company doesn't want to store it either. So normally that would probably go to waste. We would take that and then we would try and either work with makers who might repurpose that. So that's quite a good example. One girl took a rug, some what looked like the edge of a rug away. And she said, I'm going to take this and turn it into a dress and I had absolutely no idea how she was going to do that but she unpicked the whole thing and rewove it and turned it into this incredible dress that she used as part of her show and just the creativity I guess this is what's quite important to the system is that reuse only really works with it when it's added with creativity you need the you need all of the people to have the ideas of what it could be and every week I mean it's it's such a great place to work because people come in and you just get such abstract applications of what they think they're going to do. So one girl took away some curtain material and turned that into like a trouser suit, which was insane. And we've had people use it for collage. We've had people use it for book binding. It just the applications are really varied. And yeah, it's great. It's great to see. Really cool. It, I, we were talking before the show a little bit. I mean, if you can ever come up with a business idea. I mean, not even just at the sort of maker scale, but even at a larger industrial scale where your raw product is somebody else's waste product. It seems like that's Yeah. I've been learning a lot about circular economy and it's, there, there, there are lots of academics and people who have been working in this area for decades and there are lots of known kind of themes. And what you're talking about there is what they call industry symbiosis, which is where one industry's waste stream is another industry's materials. Mm-hmm. And there are there have been lots of com- there have been lots of governments and, and lots of initiatives like Ellen MacArthur Foundation here in the UK is like the biggest circular economy global group working to try and better understand what those in- industry symbioses, is that the plural of symbiosis, mm-hmm. might be. And um, 
and and that's really important, especially at, at large scale. There's a lot happening there. I guess the area that we're quite interested in is is a little bit. There's a term which kind of gets thrown around, which is like waste hierarchy. That you know, it's like where where is the kind of flow of waste and what we're looking at quite a specific part of the waste hierarchy, which is bits of material, fabric, textiles, which are quite small and that some producers, suppliers, they don't think it's going to be of use to anybody. And actually you need more creativity in order to try and think about how those might be reused. One of the one of the challenges with industries and biases, in fact, is that if you become a company that's reliant on a specific source, and then that source dries up, then mm. that obviously plays havoc with your business model. So it, I, I guess it's thinking about, uh, and actually one of the things that a lot of companies say is, we couldn't work with that waste because there's not enough of it. And actually we need to be able to produce 30,000 units in order for us to get the, you know, so it, it there is something about it being quite, um, what's the right word? It works well for craftspeople and makers because they're often working at quite small scale anyway. So that's yeah. that's and not well. and not necessarily ramping their scale at any point. It's exactly. it's more of a uniform production. Exactly, and output. often that part of their part of their selling point is often that they're saying that um, the each each item that they're selling is unique anyway. So actually, that plays into that. More and more makers and craftspeople are saying that they want to reuse materials. That was part of the whole um, emphasis of this project in the first place. We'd interviewed a whole load of makers during COVID when everyone was sat at home with less to do and trying to get to the kind of the motivations of what our community were really about. And they were all citing the same thing. They were fed up with having to use new materials and wanted to reuse where possible. And I guess it does play in, this is where the kind of, the the tickle bit comes in is it does play into that kind of good life aspect, which is we, you know, we, we, we can lead sustainable lives. It just takes a bit of imagination and time and we don't need to be creating things out of new materials. We really don't just needs a little bit more thinking. So, so let's talk about how you, um, got here. Uh, one of the things in tickled itself, was for me, it was, I suddenly realized, oh my God, I don't want to be a business writer anymore. What the hell have I been doing all this time? And um, almost felt compelled to shift gears in the subject matter of the book and just sort of change my focus. And you went from a um, uh, two-decade career in publishing, working with sort of traditional publishing, out on the digital edge, but still traditional publishing. And uh, now you're uh, working with the borough of Hackney, getting scrap pieces of carpet from <laughs> companies. So um, Glamour. T- tell us how you, um, what the, what was going on that led you to want to change? And then what gave you uh, the, courage or the ambition or whatever you want to call it to make a jump into something that is clear, you know, unless I'm wrong, the complete unknown from where you were. So just for listeners thinking about, you know, the things we do, what do we do? You can do whatever you want. So tell us how this all happened. Yeah. So 
That's a very interesting question because I may have to piece it all together myself. I remember. <laughs> um, I guess the period, the sort of 10 year period before I started Yodamo, I was already working for myself. So maybe mindset already was quite independent and not worrying too much. It wasn't like I was leaving a full time job, for example. Right. Um, and I'd gone from quite a traditional uh, publishing arena. So Random House, you know, like a bricks and mortar publisher and then moved into this kind of digital publishing arena, which then started to segue a little bit with startup kind of the startup world uh, because digital publishing became a kind of area of interest to to startup and to investors. And as a result of that, I started working with quite a number of startups who were from very different sectors. So it might be, let's say, for example, an American company who had created a content machine, but they realized, oh, well, actually, we're going to have to work with some publishers to, to actually populate this thing. How do I do that? And so I got quite into, interested in startups as a notion. And, and I was really interested in, um, I am, I still am very interested in business and business models. In fact, I'm even more interested in them now because I'm trying to work out how business models work in a circular economy, which is really complicated because there's not, you're talking about, they're not being, you're talking about taking money out of the equation a lot of the time, which is really fascinating, but I'm, I'm genuinely interested in business models. And Towards the end of that period, the sort of period of working on the literary platform where we were working with lots of different startups, we worked with this one startup, which was um, a two and a half million euro project, uh, which two, I'm not going to say millennials because that sounds like I don't like millennials, two young men had managed to leave a two and a half million euros for a, a startup project, which, you know, it, 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 it needed work. But it it kind of highlighted to me this world of finance going into an idea and that money, you know, disappeared and went again. Anyway, I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm really I'm just going off and tangent now. But what happened was that one of the agencies that was involved with working on this startup with us said to us, well, actually, we're looking now at startup ideas ourselves. We're going to start this incubation arm of our agency would you like to come and create a book startup of your own? We think you'd be really good to start up your own company and with your own book startup idea. And I guess confronted by that ask or that that opportunity, it made me realize that I had nothing left to say about digital publishing. I was not <laughs> interested in book startup. I wasn't even sure I was interested in startup per se. So that coincided with another really big thing that happened, which is that, uh, 10 years ago and um she was a, a massive maker so this is where it all comes from in terms of our family interest in making uh she was a, a sewing teacher made everything in the house um every wall was stenciled um every textile that you saw in the house had been handmade um clothes were mended mended and mended and when she died we were confronted with this kind of huge house full of machinery, equipment, everything, textiles, everything to do with every kind of craft, a loom, um, literally like all of these things. And we had to try and work out what to do with it. And we, I, I took a lot of it on because I was kind of just didn't, well, partly not wanting to let go, but took on all of this machinery 
and a lot of textiles. My sister Julia took a lot of textiles as well. I had them at the house. And at that point, I did um, I did a refresher course on how to use a sewing machine, and I I went to do this course on how to use a sewing machine, and and it was a bit like riding a bike. Suddenly, these memories of like of being a child and making it with my mother had come back. And I actually had some skills. I still had some skills, which I was really um, interested in. <laughs> this sent me down a rabbit hole of how people learn to make now and also made, you know, there's a huge maker movement. This is 10 years ago. There was already a huge maker movement that was brewing, a renewed maker movement. And I was kind of one, interested in that, you know, what was bringing us back to making? And it felt like a very sort of post-digital reaction that people were moving away from digital technology. What am I going to do if I'm not on my phone? I would like to do something with my hands that is not going to involve the doom scroll, you know, it just, it was interesting that this was happening. So just to come back to the original question, when, what happened then was this, when this company said, do you want to do anything that's like a startup around books? I was like, no, definitely not. Definitely not digital publishing, but I am really interested in making. And I'm really interested in how people are learning to make now. And that was the kind of tiny little acorn of the idea at that point. And, um, and then I effectively kind of segued into this new world. And a lot of those skills were transferable because, you know, writers are not dissimilar to makers in in their, their outlook and their their approach. And so suddenly turning my thinking and my experience of working with writers to a maker community was not such a huge leap in that sense. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that was the, the start of it. But then even within Yodomo, there's been a journey. That's the other thing, because during that period, so we set up in 2017. And in that period, uh, we've had, you know, two to three years of COVID. And that's obviously had a huge impact on everything as well. And now it's only now that I really feel in my entire life that I'm working with purpose. And I know that's a word that's thrown around mm. a lot. But I genuinely feel like we're doing something that matters. <laughs> it's the first time I've ever really genuinely felt that in my working career. Just as a sort of little uh, insight, though, on that, someone texted me this morning and she was talking about how she she used to run a startup and now has got a job. And I said, I need to get a job too. And she said, you've got a job. And I said, I know it's a good one, but it would be great if it was a paid job. And I guess that's the difficult bit is the passion, purpose, circular economy. The difficult bit is trying to work out how are we going to fund all of these sustainable initiatives that are having impact because we can't just rely on social enterprise. That's my little bugbear of the moment. So, you know, what's fascinating is, um, my kombucha making thing came about in a very similar way. I suddenly was looking for something to do that was non-digital. And um, unlike you, I didn't have cr like a crafting background at all. But suddenly for me, for the first time ever, I was like, oh, my God, it's so great to actually make something. Uh, that I'm involved in. And likewise, I want to echo too, um, 
having written Tickled and started this podcast with Matt, it's the first time in my life where I have felt like I had some purpose, that I actually cared about, you know, you care about specific projects in a career, but it's like I cared about the whole thing. And I look back, I think COVID in particular for, you know, those of us who had the good fortune of it gave us a chance to, to do a little resetting and figure out what it is that really mattered to us. And I make this point in the book and I've made it with Matt a lot on the podcast. I was like, yes, there were some very horrible parts of COVID, right? Like death, that death is, 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 a, is never good for anyone, but it's like, if we can set that aside, there are, there's good and bad things about everything. And I think we've overlooked or maybe less now because you hear more and more stories, but uh, so much good came out of that couple of years that I don't, th I don't think it's really registered yet. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think, yeah, you can't, you can't ignore the death part of it and a negative impact to a lot of businesses. Um, but the, the reset bit, I think, has been a positive thing. One of the things that I've really noticed is uh, the reset of larger corporations, even, you know, in terms of their thinking around community and sustainability and just responsibility. I mean, I know America obviously has the B Corp movement, which is now kind of, we've got now a thousand B Corp companies in the UK. And it, the the interest in kind of having that responsible business badge is really fascinating that it, it's become so important or become a benchmark within industry. I think that's a lot to do with COVID in a way that I guess the big thing about COVID with, with business in particular was its responsibility to its employees and its community. And, and this this idea that business was somehow it had a place in society. And I don't think we felt like that before. I don't think it was seen in the same way. There was an element of corporate social responsibility, perhaps. But now, when, I, when I'm talking to companies now, they're all talking about community. It's so interesting. It's like, when, when were you ever interested in community? And it's, it's just a massive shift. It's a really big shift and a positive one. I think it is a big positive one. Well, you know, what's interesting too. It's, it's like, um, on the one hand, it's not necessarily that everybody has wholesale changed what they're doing, right? Like companies still do what they did. Uh, they make what they made. Um, it, I think a lot of it has to do with how we think about what we do. And then that has sort of peripheral and tangential effects that we become more aware of than we were before. Right. Yeah. And I think, again, you've got sort of top down and bottom up approaches to this as well, which is you've I never thought I would see the day where a VC actually gave monkeys about sustainability or community. But you're now seeing capital interest in companies that have responsibility and it's deemed to be a good thing. And then from the bottom up, you have consumers saying, actually, I don't want to deal with these companies if they're not you know, in the right place or being responsible. So that's a massive shift change. It really is. 
I remember um, we did this really funny workshop like years ago where we were trying to get to our mission, vision and values. You know, one of those exercises, half day workshop for the team. And because we're so, you know, we never have enough money. We basically borrowed a friend's office, which um, which a friend of mine kindly offered up. And uh, in one of our kind of, you know, actionable kind of outputs, we just put be nice, which was just we just put that up there. And I remember coming out of this, this was probably four or five years ago, and they were all laughing at us. They were literally laughing at us. You know, they couldn't believe that that would even be a consideration in any kind of business proposition. And now, ironically, I'm still working with this company. We still do things with them. This has become part of their output as well. Like they, they're they starting to bring in these sentiments, you know, the idea of kind of those words going together, like nice business. It's mm. it's interesting. It's a, it's a right. big shift. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> it is about time. It is about time. But to your point, Duff, about the um, uh, people just starting to make and having that thing about making, one of the things that we always notice where people come in for workshops, for example, and they make something is that absolute joy, especially if they haven't made anything in a long time or ever. A lot of uh, the workshop participants are often from things like lawyers or like banks. You know, there's a real range of people that come to workshops and and have that aha moment of like, oh, my God, I've made something. And one of our observations is that like in most people's jobs, you don't really get a tangible output anymore. You know, everything's so digital, infinite scroll, nothing's ever finished. Your inbox is never empty you know everything's infinite so to have a kind of two-hour session where you sit down and make something and you have a physical product that comes out at the end of it I think that plays into human nature really that we need to have that sometimes we need to have that I made it and it's finished and it's over and now I'll move on to something else yeah it's really interesting because as a as a you know career writer I did think I had a you know, I never really thought of myself as a creative. Uh, so I was in nonfiction. It was more like I felt like my books were sort of re- projects, research projects. Um, but I did feel like there was a creative aspect to what I did. But then um, kombucha being and quite literally my my first ever real hobby. Um which actually involves real hands-on move materials and, and choosing stuff, craftsmanship. And, but also just sort of, but a kind of um, specialization that writing is a little too generic for. Um, I, it would, and it remains to this day, just unbelievable to me how different the feeling is. Um, even between that and writing. And I think we live in this age of abstraction, right? Everybody's kind of abstracted away from doing real things. And um, so, you know, congratulations, because I think your your new thing is helping other people figure out their new thing. And um, I said it to you the other day, it's like a vortex. It's like if we can keep if we can get interest going in finding your tickle, right, which isn't reading things, which isn't gossiping, which isn't simply ordering food off a list, which, you know, and then people will start to feel a kind of connection 
with their own existence. At least for me, that's what happened. It's like suddenly I was engaged in my own existence again. And you have that feeling. I've I've described it this way before. It's not for our this is for our R-rated audience. It's like sometimes when you're high, you never know how high you were until you suddenly come down and you're like, oh my gosh, I was high. For me, I didn't realize how I wasn't uh, like how disengaged I was from my own life until suddenly the shift happened. I was like, holy smokes, I was coasting without knowing, right? Just thinking that I was doing things. But if you're not like hooked into your reality in the, in the way you could be, you're just sort of floating through your existence. And, and that's what COVID did to a lot people, I think. It gave them the time and space to think or to actually acknowledge things about their lives, which they'd never had that time to think before. We was, had to, used to have this thing where when it, when we were doing like initial investment rounds for Yodamo, where we were trying to crowdfund and people would say, well, who's got the time to make, you know, who actually has the time to make? And in our pitch deck, we used to put this thing, which was, um, well, you know, AI is coming down the road and, you know, soon all the robots are going to be doing all the jobs and it's going to create more leisure time for people. <laughs> and so people are going to be doing more hobbies. And this is where our, you know, our, our proposition is going to really come into play. This is pre-reuse um, offer. And uh, and when COVID hit, it was just an acceleration of that. It's like, we don't need AI to come down the road because everyone is at home now and they have to do hobbies. But it was so interesting that Based like I don't know what it was like in the states, but basically in the UK we had the furlough system, so people were off work, and it was subsidised by the government. And so, or they had they were off work, but they were working from home. So you had a, a, a not everybody. I have to be careful that it wasn't everybody, but you did have a large part of the population who were sitting around at home with nothing to do really. And it was interesting that it was a stress release. That was the thing that was so interesting that people were turning to crafts because it relieved them of stress because humans still need, they need purpose. They can't not be doing anything. That's mm-hmm. like all the chat GPT stuff at the moment. I'm just like, bring it on, you know, take all the jobs because then we can just get back to whittling wood again. It's fine. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Let the robots do all the work. Mm-hmm. Intel, it's like chat GPT, you know, make a handbag for me. Yeah. <laughs> <Or whatever. laughs> I know it's crazy. I mean, I have been because there's a there's a trick for ChatGPT here in the UK, which is you have to get on first thing in the morning because it's before the US gets up, and then you can actually get onto it for free. But yeah, I have been asking it some very complex questions, but it still can't really whittle a spoon. <laughs> Not yet. Or make kombucha. Or make All kombucha. Right. Or make kombucha. Right. Yeah. Rockledge Rasa is a one of a kind brand. <laughs> All right. Before before we go here, I want to um, ask a question about your upbringing. As I said, listeners, at the beginning, uh, Sophie's sister is married to my brother. You have what must go down as one of the most preposterously literary families um, in the history of man. Your father is a poet and an author. Your uh, sister, Julia, is um, an author. Her uh, first or her novel, her first novel, The House at the Edge of the World, is one of the most delightful books 
I've read in years. Your other sister uh, is a book binder. And you spent a year uh, or year uh, career in publishing. Um, what the hell? My brother has published a book. As oh, and well. sorry, your brother. I f- forgot. Your brother is an artist and a, and a published author of um, uh, both art books. Right. He's got a um, couple art books, doesn't he? So and, and you guys are from the uh, uh, East East Devon down on the coast uh basically in fish in a fishing town uh on the on the south coast of England what the hell happened did um did the ghost of shakespeare um <laughs> come into that house and touch all you guys how did you how did this how did you all end up um uh so intertwined with the the worlds of words and books and publishing so yeah, if that's mostly my dad, I would say, uh, Ralph. And I didn't, you, you don't really think about these things as you're growing up, but it's only now when I sort of hear a literary quote and I realise that everything that we ever had was literary quotes at the dinner table. You know, everything was some kind of, with all the Brexit stuff, everyone kept talking about no man is an island. And it's like, we had that quote thrown at us the whole time when we were growing up. And yeah, so it was a kind of an upbringing of literary quotes and then the combination of my mother, who is really creative as well. So we had this, the combination. It was quite weirdly Victorian, my upbringing, (laughs) but you don't even think about these things until you're older. But we didn't have a television. Lots of my friends had TVs and well, everyone had a TV. On Thursday nights, we were allowed to go to our neighbours to watch Dallas, which was our treat. So we were allowed (laughs) to go to the neighbours and watch Dallas. Um, Eventually, we were allowed a TV, which was a black and white, tiny little black and white TV. When, you know, by that stage, everyone was onto their kind of huge colour TV, sort of full screen things. And our neighbours used to come around and they'd always make jokes about how we were watching kind of old black and white movies when we were clearly just watching a, like a soap Dallas. opera. Exactly. <laughs> so there was that. And then, um, yeah, what else? I mean, it was it was a kind of crazy time. Like Christmas was, so my mother was German and, you know, they have a very strong kind of uh, tradition of crafts anyway. And obviously she was a keen maker, but Christmas was always super special. We weren't allowed to open any presents until we performed and um, performance was not like a kind of primary school jazz hands thing, you know, it would have to be something quite literary or operatic or, you know, something quite learned. And uh, I mean, Julia, I think picked up most of it. She's probably the most intellectual out of all of us. And she's the, she's the real writer really out of the siblings. Um, Kate's work is absolutely incredible. I mean, she's, she's taken on, mum and dad in both ways in terms of the visual and the love of books I guess actually the other bit that I've missed out is that my dad would always take us to bookstores so we would always be on the hunt in charity shops for secondhand books so he's got some amazing I mean obviously charity shops are not what they used to be but in the olden days you know he's got first editions of The Hobbit and things that he's found in stores in in Devon and everything was always a hunt you know looking so we we would go into second secondhand shops with him or charity shops, and we would he would be teaching us how to identify what an edition was, who the publisher was, what was valuable, what wasn't valuable. 
And yeah, I mean, I guess it must just have all been instilled into us somehow. I didn't even want to work in publishing, if I'm honest. Like I, that sounds really awful because I know there's lots of people that probably would have really loved to watch work work in publishing. But I was working in um, Camden Market, which is like a very cold place to work, even though it's great fun. But I had cold feet, wet feet most of the time. And then my friend Miranda, who I think you'd met actually, Duff, she, she came to New York one time, and then um, she. She she was the one who was back. She was quite literary actually. She was she was really always wanted to work in publishing, and she started working at Routledge, which is an academic publisher. And then that was my segue in. I I kind of went in and did a work experience slot there. Yeah, it's funny because I'm watching Seinfeld at the moment, which is reruns of Seinfeld, and of course the, the publishing house always comes into that, and it does make me feel quite nostalgic for a t- for an era of publishing. That is, you know, there was. There was a, a funny time for publishing. I don't know if it's the same as it used to be, but yeah, we've all we've all got it, and it's quite funny. My dad's proudly got us uh, a bookshelf in his house, which has got his books on it, and then all of the books of all of his children on there. And um, yeah, I don't think there's probably other families that have it, but. Maybe we are a bit of an anomaly. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to see that you're catching up with Lost Time by uh, watching those Seinfeld reruns. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I love them. I love she wasn't them. allowed. Wasn't allowed as a kid. <laughs> All right, Sophie, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And um, uh, thank you for all you're doing with... Um, the company and the and the circular economy and stuff it's very inspiring and um get people making stuff again from my own experience like i've like i said it's one of the greatest feelings i've ever had uh so the fact that you're a facilitator of all that um congrats and and thank you very much it's wonderful it's great to talk to you thank you nice to meet you both nice to see you and to meet you yeah and nice to talk thanks a lot bye-bye <laughs> great talking to you sophie cheers All right, so there you have it. That is, uh, she's not really my sister-in-law. You're not a No, si- I know what you mean. I, I, I have my brother-in-law's, bro- my brother-in-law, Jeff, who, who you know quite well. Jeff's brothers are, would be the sa- the equivalent, Ross, Ross yeah. and Don, Bright Up are my, I can't, you know, and I, I know them so well and I've known them for like 30 years. And when I describe them, I just say my brother-in-law, because what are you going to say? Sometimes I say my brother-in-law-in-law my brother-in-law's brother, but usually just say brother-in-law. You can call her your sister-in-law. Um, what a, what a wild thing to, to be doing too, is like getting involved. Um, I didn't actually realize it until we were talking there. It's like the, the creativity in making kombucha, like I said, it's been one of the most satisfying things for me in memory. Uh, she's actually helping people find that again. And then Mm -hmm. also helping source their, raw materials for them. It's pretty yeah. wild. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, it's a little bit, you know, Marxist, I guess, like in sort of like reacquainting people with the means of production by like encouraging this kind of handcrafted thing. I don't know. I mean, I guess there, there are scores of people that will leave their jobs and use this as their primary, you know, means of income. But I also, I, I imagine there's a lot of people that this is a side hustle or, you know, a hobby that they can earn some income from, right? It's like but, a little but, thing. But yeah. you can take me, kombucha, we yeah. make $0. I've never sold a single bottle. So it's, um, well, I you never learned, charged me 
for mine. I mean, it just I, arrived and I right. drank it. Yeah. I learned how to do a thing and it's brought me great joy just to do that thing separate from money. And, um, you know, she makes the point that it's really hard to, to for in, you know, to get a circular economy, actually business model going. Cause you're dealing with weird kind of flux of, flow of material and demand and yeah, et cetera. Your supply, well, th- concepts like the supply chain, it's like right. the supply chain ran out because my supply chain was that one roll of fabric or that one, you know, weird piece of carpet that, that was from the L shaped room. And it's like, once I used it up, then, you know, I had to, I was kind of on to the next thing, which I guess yeah. she, she can kind of be the pipeline for that kind of stuff, but, but it's it not, makes her, it's uneven. It makes- yeah. Makes it inherently volatile, right? Yeah. You can't yeah. forecast that. All right. So I have an I've got a good one for you that I just learned yesterday. So uh was reading about um awareness and our ideas of distance, right? So like um is 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 space real. And the guy, the guy was making the following point. He says, so if you look at, if you're trying to look at a thing that's too far away for you to see, right, call it a star, or let's say you're at some concert and you can't see the stage. So you get either a telescope or a pair of binoculars, right? And you look through it and you can see it quite clearly. Right. So the telescope did not bring the star closer to you. Right. The star is still exactly the same distance away from you that it was. Um, It simply aided your eye, which was incapable of seeing it at whatever distance, to see it. So in. In both those circumstances of binoculars looking at something or a telescope, it's not actually the distance of a thing that matters. It's whether it's cognizable to you. Right? Cognizable? Whether, Is this your one for <laughs> No, no, no. So so basically it's whether you can pull it into your awareness in such a way that you can get a hold on it. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you and I are both looking at over some long distance and I say, can you see that thing? And you say, no, I can't. I'm like, what? You can't see that thing. It's just so you it's too far for you to see, not f- too far for me to see. Say my eyesight's just a little better. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the it's not actually distance that matters. It's mm-hmm. awareness that matters. Right. So you can see a thing if you're aware of it. So you can see a star through a telescope. So essentially, distance is an illusion. It's not real. It's relative. It's simply whether something lies inside or outside your understanding. Right. So we in physical, we think of a physical distance as a real thing. But think of an idea, right, like something that lies just outside the realm of your current understanding. It's too far outside your understanding. So it's sort of mentally distant for you. And then mm-hmm. if you learn something that pulls it in and you're like, oh, no, I get that now. It's no longer mentally distant. 
So distance, awareness is all. Distance is not real. Distance is only an appearance and only in a particular circumstance, and it's not universal. Is it, it that it's depends. not real or it's, or it, I mean, it, it's relative. It's is relative, which means it? it's not real, right? It means that the underlying is not influenced by the, di- the, the physical distance, right? It's just simply whether you can pull it into your awareness. So that one kind of blew my mind. I was like, oh, wow. So, um, okay. We got to talk about the fact that you threw cognize there, like, <laughs> like cognize, like if you cognize something, do you need to cognize it again in order to recognize it? To re- to recognize uh, something. <laughs> there you go. Right, you've cognized it for the first time, and then when you recognize it, yeah, you reco- it's to re- yeah recognize. That's but it. same point, right? You it's buried like, you buried a, an amazing. I've got one for you right inside of that. I didn't even know yeah. I had it. So that's what that's teamwork for you. <laughs> All right. So uh, to close things out, um, I have a quote from. Uh, again, he's my current guy. His name's Siddha Rameshwar Maharaj, um, uh, who pointed me to that difference between awareness and distance. And it's just kind of fascinating. He says, just as in a seed, the entire tree is present, the whole world exists in awareness. Trees proliferate from the seed. Similarly, this maya, maya is what the yogis call illusion, or awareness is the seed from which this world has proliferated. Consider your experience during deep sleep. You do not have the slightest perception of the existence of the world, your wife, your own body, or anything that's near you. The world exists only as long as you perceive it. When the world is forgotten, this state is called deep sleep. In the dream, the same awareness projects another world. So your awareness when you're dreaming, you, it's, it's, uh, you perceive something else. When space and bodies are created in the dream, is there actually any space No, the one who makes place, basically creates a place for space itself, is your awareness. It is the support of the whole world. So, Mm. just to recap, when you dream, there's space in your dream, but there's not, it's not an actual space. You're just lying there on your bed. Right. If you have a, if you're dreaming a football field, there's no football field. It's in your mind. It's in your dreamscape. It's in your dreamscape. And in the point the yogis make, which is so hard to wrap your head around, but which I'm just toying with all the time now is it's the same when you're awake. You just think it's different. So when you die, it's not you that ceases to exist. It's the world that ceases to exist. This world. The world as far as you're concerned. 
right? So there's isn't that absolute... the only world? Isn't that the only world though? I thought that was part of no, this. no. Your, your I've been trying mi- to follow along at home here. <laughs> okay, your 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 mind creates universes, right? And they're mm-hmm. all so like when you when you have a new thought, right? So say you got a hate on for somebody, right? And the world just gets a little colored by that, right? The world that you're living in includes this person that you hate or this person that you love, right? And then you change your mind about that, and you're like, oh no, they're not so bad. And so suddenly the world's different. So you've you're throwing off these universes in your mind every time you have a new thought, right? So we just, it just is more clear at night that when you're dreaming, what's happening, that your mind is throwing off universes. It's the same thing that's happening during the day. We're just not aware of it. On which note, thank you for listening. Yeah. We'll we'll be back with a new universe next next week. Thanks for, thank you. All of you. Bye. present moment traveling town to town mystery of emotion right here right now right here right now You've been listening to How to Tickle Yourself with your hosts, Duff McDonald and Matt McButter. You can help us by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with others. You can talk to us and see what else is happening on Instagram and Facebook at How to Tickle Yourself. This program was recorded in Studio B of the historic Rockledge Recording Studio and the Tunnel Under Arundel. Right here, right now, our original 16-part theme music was written and recorded by the legendary Paul Reddick and Kyle Ferguson of the Sidemen with the brilliant Steve Mariner on bass and drums and in the mixing room. The podcast is produced and distributed by Storic Media. Our editor is Andrew Steiner. Our coordinator is Samantha Abramovitz. Our producers are Kristen Verbitsky and Chuck LaBella. For more information, visit storicmedia.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-C media.com. My love, my dear.